Let me pray. God, thank you so much for another day. Thank you for um, the blessings of the day, that you are uh, with us, that you remain faithful, that you uh, give us all the spiritual riches in Christ in the heavenly places, and um, that you are um, conforming us into his image more and more day by day. We pray thanking you for all these gifts and pray for help as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are continuing to look at our study here in the Doctrines of Grace. That's what we've been studying. And just a little bit of things to remind us what we're talking about. The, this is the biblical teaching on God's grace in saving sinners, right? So doctrines, there's a bunch of doctrines that, that fit together. It's, it's not just one doctrine. We're looking at several doctrines that all fit together. And uh, by doctrine, we mean things that we see in the Bible, right? The, I mean, that's the goal, right? I mean, obviously some people, you can have false doctrine, right? But the goal is to have biblical doctrine. So we want the, the biblical teaching, the biblical doctrines related to God's grace in saving sinners, right? Um, and uh, so we want, we want to know what is God's grace. We want to know how does it relate to us in uh, saving us specifically? And how does a Christian, we could say it this way, how does a Christian become a Christian, how does one enter into the kingdom of God? I mean, that's kind of the question we're trying to answer with the doctrines of grace as we study them. And uh, our goal is to, a couple of, I mean, there's a bunch of different goals, but just maybe rehearsal of a, a couple here, to think biblically. That, that's our goal. So we talked about this before. You know, we did a little bit of a history lesson, talked a little about history. The goal is not just to, uh, I follow this person, I follow that person or whatever. The goal is to think biblically, right? That's what we want. So that's why we want to go to the Bible and say, what do we see? What does it say? Um, we have questions. We want to say, okay, well, well, how can I answer that question in the Bible, not just um, on my own? That doesn't mean we're not going to use things like logic or philosophy. It just means those things are under the authority of Scripture, right? We, we want our logic to be fitting with what the Scriptures say, not contradictory to what the Scriptures say. So we want to think biblically. Um, and, and really, the reason that's a goal is because if God has said something, which he has said things about saving us, if he said things about that, he didn't waste space, right? I mean, he didn't just like put it in there and was like, I just really, I mean, it's not a big deal. People have all sorts of different views, so don't even worry about trying to sort it out. It's, not, it's just not a big deal. I'm just gonna go ahead and put it in there just because I had a little extra space, didn't like the way the margins were working out, wanted to fill that out. That's not the way it works, right? He, he gave us things in the Bible for a reason, so that we will think rightly, so that we will glorify him, so that our joy will be full. And so we wanna know what he says. We wanna think biblically which is really ties into the second point. We want to be able to praise God and have a great joy in his grace towards us. So we want to study the doctrines of grace, not just so we can be smarter, right? I mean, although our intellect certainly is part of what God forms through his word, but we desire to be formed intellectually in what we know so that our hearts are praising God, in other words, responding rightly to God, praising God, finding joy in the Lord. That's what our goal is. So we want to glorify God and enjoy him. That's what we're after. The way we're approaching this study, just a reminder, is uh, remember we talked about that little um, acronym uh, earlier that um, just told us five of these kind of main doctrines that we're looking at, but we're approaching it maybe slightly different. We're looking at it mainly from the way we experience it. How do we in our life tend generally to experience the doctrines of grace? I realize it's not necessarily the way everybody experiences them, uh, especially if you grew up in a very um, reformed church. You, you, may, you may have Grow up, grown up hearing so much about God's election, that really may have been at the top of your mind. Probably for most of us, that wasn't your first experience. Your first experience is total depravity, radical depravity. You come to realize, I have a problem with God. 
right? That's just kind of your first experience. Your conscience is telling you there's a problem here. The warning light is flashing. So you recognize there's a problem. Uh, then we see that, that God gives us eyes to see Jesus as supremely valuable and to trust him. So, so we, 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 what that means is we hear the gospel in a way where we are drawn to believe it, right? It's seen as good news. Um, I mean, you know, what makes the difference between the way we hear it and other, other people hear it? A lot of people hear the gospel. Well, we hear it, but in such a way that it is good news to us. So we could call that effectual call or irresistible grace. We see specifically in this message that we hear that Jesus paid for our sins and we understand the atonement that he made payment for us and that it is a particular atonement. It will be applied to those who are in him, right? He came to save a specific group of people, those who are in him. And we recognize that his atonement is what we need. We realize, and, and I think as, then as we grow, what happens is we see more, like Paul, you see this with Paul, you see more and more of your sinfulness. But even as a Christian, but really it's probably not so much that you're acting worse now than you did before you became a Christian, right? I mean, gen, that's not the biblical picture of Christianity, right? You're saved, you have the Holy Spirit, things are changing, right? So it's not so much that you've actually become worse. You just start to realize more and more that this was not just all these things I did that were a problem. Man, I, I still even have big problems, right? And now when I look back before I knew Christ, I realize I was totally blind to the goodness of God. So you start to recognize more and more of the sinfulness, your deadness towards God, even especially before you became a Christian. And as, as that's happening and you're reading the Bible, you're coming across passages that talk about God predestining and electing and, and setting his love on his people in a way that he said, it's not because of your goodness that I set my love on you, right? But because I loved you, that's why I redeemed you. And so you're seeing all these things and the pieces start to get put together. And um, if you've come to an understanding that's fitting what we're saying, you come to understand something about God's unconditional election. Okay? Now, I realize not everybody holds to that view, and, uh, but I think it's biblical, and that's why I want to present it. That's my goal. My goal is to be biblical, right? Now, I'm not saying that other people don't have Bible verses and talk. They, they do. We, we do. The point is not to, you know, the us versus them. But um, I think this is generally the way, if you've come to understand the doctrines of, of saving grace this way, this is how it's unfolded in your mind, right? Um, and then uh, we also realize that God is holding on to us. And he is giving us a desire to follow Jesus in all that we do and to continue to follow Jesus in all that we do. And we could describe that as the perseverance of the saints, or we could say the preservation of God. He preserves us so that if, if he's called us to follow God, or to follow Christ, we now have a desire to do that. And we do it. And we keep following. And we fail. And we keep following. <laughs> right? And we fail again. And by God's grace, we keep following. We persevere. So that's what, what we're looking at. Last week we saw total or radical depravity, and today we're going to start looking at how we are rescued from that deadness towards God. This lesson, in a lot of ways, is a bridge between last and, and the next session. We're going to be talking about the new birth. Last time we saw the problem, and we're going to talk more about that today because, this, like I said, this lesson is going to bridge those two points. Uh, today we're going to look at the new birth, and then the next session we'll elaborate more on how we come to believe, how, how we come to um, experience this new birth being worked out when God gives us this new birth, okay? That's what the next session is going to be when we talk about effectual call and irresistible grace. So the outline for today, then, is a review of our condition. We're kind of reviewing some stuff from last week, but building a little bit on that to bridge us now to the part we're talking about today, which will take us to the second part, which is what's the cure? Last week, what's the problem? This week, what's the cure? That's what we're looking at. And... Um, 
we want to we want to see why do we need regeneration? What is regeneration? And we're going to look at a couple passages related to that. Okay, so total depravity, or you might say, what is our problem? And the, and the answer is total or radical depravity. You remember radical there? What we mean is it, it deals with the issue of root at the root. We are not going God's way. That's what we're saying. This is before before salvation. And when we say root, what we mean is like everything, not like, I mean, everything has been affected by our not going God's way. So it's, it's not just, uh, I do some bad things. I mean, we take it to the root. That's the fruit, right? The root is, well, I was rebellion against God, right? I, I had desires of the flesh, no desires for God. I was dead to God, alive to the passions of my flesh, things like that. We're going to look at that here in a second. Um, and this is important. I mean, if you, if you go to a, a doctor's office um, for a medical exam um, and you get taken back there and, you know, your assumption is just you've had a little bit of a, whatever, a headache or cough or something, and you go back there and then the, the doctor um, or the nurse comes in and says with a, a chart and an anesthesiologist and all these other people, and, um, you know, the surgeon comes in and says, okay, well, we're going to be taking off your right leg today. And I mean, you, I mean, you're probably running out of the, the building, right? Because why? Because you, no one's, the problem, is it really that big? Is, I mean, do we need to take off the right leg? Uh, I'm, and, you know, I'm feeling it up here in my lungs, not in my leg. Um, so we need to understand um, the problem. The, the, we really need to get a handle on the problem, which we did last week, and I want to build on it this week because, like I said, it really flows into what we're talking about um, if we're going to understand the solution and, and why this... Because the solution is radical. gets to the root, right, um, in the same way that the problem is. So let's talk about radical depravity. Essentially, as Doug pointed out last week, we're born with a sinful nature, and we are sinners, therefore we sin. Uh, you might think, you know, why is this a problem? I mean, Jesus came to save sinners, just trust in Jesus, right? I mean, that seems like a pretty straightforward solution. And, uh, and, and everyone who does believe is saved. That's true, right? The Bible says that. Um, but the problem is that sin has infected and corrupted every aspect of the person, our desires and loves. John 3, 19 through 20. I'm just going to read this for you. I don't think I have it on your handout. John 3, 19 through 20. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, the problem is we loved the darkness, that's the issue, which, by the way, is why we are culpable for our sin. Some people think all these doctrines, the doctrines of grace, well, that, that makes people not culpable, not responsible. I mean, they couldn't help it. No, they could have. We're doing exactly what we want to do when we sin. We're going after what we most love, which is not God, right? People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So it affects our loves and our desires. It affects our mind. Romans 8, 7. Doug went over this last time. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It affects our will, um, which is our thinking and our desiring put into action. The next part of Romans 8, 7, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Titus 3, 3, we are slaves to various passions. So Jesus came to save sinners, but the, but the issue is as sinners, we do not want salvation. We are running the opposite direction as fast as we can away from God. So let's talk more in depth here about our condition, and then we will contrast it with the solution. So we are, you see on your handout there, we are dead to God. Someone read Ephesians 2, 1, and 3 nice and loud for us on your handout. Okay, so we are dead, right? I know you don't really need the screen, but it just, it's cool. So you're dead, <laughs> right? 
that's that's a problem. Um, you you were dead in the trespasses of and sins that you had. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit more about this on the solution side. So for now, I just want you to see uh, that is a that's, again, it's like going into the doctor. Um, that's a bad diagnosis, right? To say the least. Okay. Next, someone read Titus three three for us. Slaves. Um, what does it mean to say that we're slaves to various passions and pleasures? Does it mean I equally could have chosen something else? Yeah, you're controlled by it. And again, who is responsible for that enslavement? We are. We're doing what we most love. It's not like a slavery where we're, we're, we're not doing what I really, really want to submit to God. But I, I just, I'm enslaved, so I can't. I mean, it is true that you're enslaved, so you can't. But you're also, I really, really want to stay here. I want to keep doing it my way. I like this way. This way works, right? This is the way it is. My master gives me all these great things. That's the issue. Um, okay, blind. Someone read 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. All right, so blinded the minds, right? So the, the idea is the mind's eye, right? The ability to see something as true and good and beautiful has, we've been blinded to it. We, we cannot see it. Um, okay, next, someone read Romans 8, 7. We're hostile. Okay, so hostile to God, right? Um, and then we, we also see here that uh, does not, cannot, right? Not doing it and unable to do it. Um, so in some ways, I mean, this, this is like, to say we're hostile in mind, I, I'm trying to think of an illustration, and I don't know if this is a, a exactly great one or not. You know, you know, illustrations are really helpful, but they can also be like not as helpful if they're not clear. But anyway, this is what I came up with. Um, it, I mean, it's kind of like saying we're in the situation where we're kind of like a diehard Al-Qaeda member versus an American soldier, right? The American soldier, a good American soldier, right? Is it, We're talking diametrically opposed because completely different way of viewing the world. One of them is like death to all these people, and the other one is like we're fighting for liberty, right? Now I'm not I'm not trying to paint like our like, you know we're perfect. I mean, everyone's got issues, okay? I get that, but but you're, you see the the issue here is totally different way of viewing it. There, there's a hostility here that is not just going to be kind of like well let's just hug it out, right? Hostile in mind to God. God says this is what's right, this is what's good, this is the purpose of the universe, my glory being put on display, and we're saying war. Those are fighting words. We will fight to the death to not go that direction. We are hostile to God. Therefore, we do not and cannot submit. That's where we see that we are hostile. All right, unwilling and unable. Someone read uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. All right, so we saw this in the, in the verse earlier, right, um, in the hostile section where I underlined it in red, but you see it here even more clearly, does not accept, he is not able to understand this. We're talking about spiritual truth, spiritual realities about who God is, uh, how glorious he is, we do not accept and we are not able to accept because they are spiritually discerned. We don't have, and we're going to see in a minute, we don't have spiritual life. We don't have the spirit to enable us to see these things as true, good, and beautiful. That's our problem. So the... Um, 
if we were to kind of bring all this together, we see in Romans 3, 10, and 11, no one is seeking God. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So are we running to God or away from God? All right. Is there anyone on a desert island running towards God and God saying no? There is no one running towards God. You see that? There is no one seeking God. I mean, I don't know how else to take that verse, right? No one seeks for God. That's, that's our problem. We're not seeking for God. Okay, now, let's, let's um, so how can we be rescued? From our guilt, because we are guilty, we need to be rescued from that, right? And, and from our unwilling inability to see the gospel as good news, and so be rescued. Uh, if you don't think the problem is as bad as we've just described it, your temptation, I'm not, I'm not saying like you, I just mean in general, right? I'm not trying to accuse anybody here, but uh, the, the temptation will always be to settle for ideas of a cure that will somehow involve some glimmer of self-reformation. I can, I, I can still, I know it's bad, but I can fix it. Or at least I can contribute something. Or, or it'll come down to like this boost idea. Well, I know I can't get myself into heaven. Come on, no one can get themselves into heaven. But if I, God, God will give me a little boost and then I'll pull myself up. Now, again, I'm not saying we actively think that way. I'm not even saying anyone in this room thinks that way. I'm just saying if we don't understand the problem for what it is, we're going to settle for something less. Kind of like that doctor illustration earlier, right? If you go in there and we, and we just, it, it, well, it's not that big of a deal. Well, then the radical cure just, it's unnecessary in our mind. Or at least maybe there's something we can add to this cure. But that doesn't seem to be the way the Bible talks about it. How can we who are radically dead to God, and, and what we're going to see in Ephesians is, what that means is, it's not like we're dead to everything when it says we're dead. We're going to see that we, we very much are alive. The issue is we are dead to God, alive to self, and the kingdom of Satan, and all these other things. So what that means is we're radically dead to God, and we are radically alive in our antagonism towards God. Now, that doesn't mean everybody is equally going around just like, well, because I hate God, I'm just going to murder people and, you know, forget helping an old lady cross the street. I'm going to push her in front of a car. Like, that, that's not what it means. It just means even the good things we do are not done in faith that, God, you exist and you are a rewarder of those who seek you and you are good and righteous in all your ways and you deserve all glory. Even in all the good things we were doing, that was not our mindset and therefore it was sin, Romans says. Anything that is done apart from faith is sin. That was our issue. So how will we, who are terrorists towards God's kingdom, be made happy citizens of it? You see the issue? I'm a terrorist towards God's kingdom. How can I not, not only just be brought in like into a prison camp, but brought in as a happy, glad, submissive, joyful citizen of the kingdom? How's that going to happen? So having seen the problem, we can now look at the cure what is the solution? The solution is the new birth. The new birth is the work of God in which he supernaturally creates spiritual life in a person so that the person has a new nature that sees Jesus as trustworthy. And we could add, and the greatest treasure. Jesus is trustworthy in the greatest treasure. So there, there's spiritual life that is given where deadness had been there. God does it. He does it supernaturally. And, and he gives us that spiritual life. And now we are seeing Jesus as trustworthy and very valuable. Think about the pearl of great price in uh, 
Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, I don't know. Anyway, one of the parables in one of the gospels talks about the pearl of great price, right? It's like a man, he's, he finds this pearl in this field, is worth an extreme crazy amount of money. And what does he do? He goes and he sells everything else to get it. In other words, he sees that as valuable. That's a picture of someone entering the kingdom, right? He, but he had to be shown this valuable treasure there. And so the same thing is true for us. We have to see this is valuable. So, so God gives us a new nature that instead of running from him, we now see Jesus as trustworthy and good and valuable and treasure. So let's, let's look at a description. And, th- and this description we're going to look at, the, of the solution, is going to correspond or offset the condition. That's, that's kind of how I approach this. So we were dead. So to be born again or regenerated is to be made alive. And when we get done with this, what we're going to look at, I want to look at three passages a little more in depth to kind of spell this out in, in like particular passages. Because right now I'm just giving you a bunch of verses. But I, this, in other words, we're kind of doing more of a systematic look at it right now. And then we're going to look more at a biblical, just dive into a, a couple texts real quick, okay? Uh, so let's talk about being made alive. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. Uh, someone read that excerpt that I have there on the handout. God being rich in mercy. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Okay, so we see that he does what? We were dead, and what does he do? Made us alive together with Christ, right? Okay, freed, Romans 6, a couple excerpts from there. Someone read that for us. Okay. So we were once slaves of sin, right? Um, and now we've become slaves of righteousness. So there's this change. We go from slave of sin to slave of righteousness. And um, is this the passage I want to do this? Yeah. So, uh, that, so that, that's true. So, so that happens to us. Uh, we know God does this to us because, by the way, it's talking about how um, you think about it this way. You don't liberate yourself from slavery, right? It has to happen to you. So, so he's going to liberate us. But notice this. Who, who is he thanking for the liberation? Does it make sense to thank God if he didn't do it? I just came up to you and I was like, hey, thank you so much for doing this for me. And you're like, I didn't do that. Right? We thank God because God did it. So thanks be to God that you who were once slaves have become obedient from the heart. So again, we see this, this enslavement was a heart issue, right? It wasn't just that Satan held me captive. I mean, that, that, there's biblical warrant to say that, but there's also it, it, my heart. My heart was happy to be in that encampment with him. But now from the heart, I'm obedient to God. I, I'm, I'm now his slave. Okay. So uh, given eyes to see... Someone read that passage from 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so he gives us this light and knowledge. Uh, Heart refers to all the inner parts of the human being, right? So desires, but also thinking, ability to see things clearly mentally. So we're given this, the hearts that we now have this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So again, it revolves around the glory of God, but we're given the ability to see that. Uh, and and it's, uh, notice he compares it to creation. Let light shine out of the darkness. Just as God speaks light into existence at creation, in the new creation, uh, the new birth, he speaks and light comes into the soul in a way that the soul can perceive it. Um, and again, we see that it is God who said, right? So God does this. 
let's go on to the next one. Children of God and citizens of his kingdom. Someone read that excerpt from Ephesians 1, 5, and 2, 19. All right, so sons, fellow citizens, uh, members of the household of God, right? So we're adopted. Um, well, adoption, I kind of didn't do that. And um, so we see that we go from being enemies to being children and citizens, right? This is what's happening in the new birth. And uh, again, we see that uh, he predestined us. Now, we still need to talk about the word predestined. That will come up later. So I understand, again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? You can't say, you shouldn't say, I guess you can say it, right? I mean, your mouth could probably move and form these words, but you shouldn't say, uh, well, I don't believe in predestination, right? It's in the Bible. Now, you may have a question about how we're defining the word, and we can talk about that and say in the scriptures, based on what we see in the scriptures, how ought we define that word? But, you, but it's not helpful to just say, well, I don't believe in predestination, right? Okay, so God does this work. He adopts us. He makes us fellow citizens in the household of God. All right, next passage, 1 John 5, 1. What we see is we're given the ability and desire to believe in Jesus and love God. Someone read 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Okay, so I don't want you to get the idea that believing isn't important, right? Believing that Jesus is the Christ. What must I do to be saved, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Yeah, we have to believe, right? We have to trust. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Um, we talk about loving, right? Loves the Father. We have to love, love, love of God. That's, that's, that's important. And this is what happens in the new birth is we believe in Jesus. We, we love the Father. Um, we love God, right? So new birth, we were unable and unwilling to believe in Jesus and, and to love God. We loved other things. We want to go other ways. In the new birth, that gets changed. We're now willing and able and we do it. Okay, one more thing to point out about this though. How does, how does this, um, what explains what? Does the belief explain the new birth and the love and the, the believing? Is that what explains it? What is, uh, well, let me do this. Sorry, it's not a great circle, but um, grammarians, right? What's going on there? What type of verb is that? Is it an active verb? Does it say, uh, or is it what? What's another passive? What does it mean when something is is a passive verb? Right. Yeah, it's being done to the object. So everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If you believe, why is it? According to this verse, you have been born of God. Right. Perfect tense. Passive perfect tense. It, 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 it happened back here, and it was done to you. That's what it means. Okay. So these are glorious truths. We go from thinking the gospel was foolish to now believing that Jesus is the Christ and loving God because we have been born again. That's what we want to look at is, is the new birth. What I'm saying is the new birth is necessary for our condition. Right? And then we talk about the effectual call and our responding to God. It's necessary for that. So that's what we're going to look at is these glorious truths. We're going to look at them by zooming into three different passages, beginning with John 3. So you can turn to John 3. 
So John 3. And as we look at these passages on the new birth, we're going to spend more time in John than the other passages is the plan anyway. Um, We're going to look at why we need the new birth, what happens in the new birth, and how it happens. Although probably more of the how it happens will also get fleshed out next week. So look at John 3, verses 1 through 8, and we're looking in these categories, why, what, and how. As I read these verses uh, here in a minute, I want you to listen for, first of all, why is the new birth important? Why is it essential? Okay? Yeah. I have a question. Yeah, yeah. We got. Uh, because I'm not strong in grammar, mm-hmm. does the fact that it happened in the past we were receiving has been born, mm-hmm. does that also imply that tense that it continues on into the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the perfect is gonna is gonna be it happened in the past, and there's continuing ramifications of it. Yeah, right. that's good. Yep, yep. Because because who believes? I think um, at least in the English here seems to be present. I didn't actually pay that much attention to that, but so there's ongoing believing, which I think flows out of the having been born again. Yeah. So John three one through eight. Why is a new birth essential according to this passage? Uh, let's see. Um, someone, someone read that for us. Someone read John three, one through eight, nice and loud, so the whole room can hear. With your maybe with your head up. That's gonna be hard because you're gonna have to hold your Bible like this. I don't know, but figure it out. Who will do that for us? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you. Unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay. So why is a new birth essential according to John 3? Yes. Yeah. And, and so one of the ways you know something's important is when it gets repeated, right? It's a good good uh, interpretation principle. And we see this repeated three times, right? Verse three, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse seven, you must be born again. Verse five, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it's essential because you cannot enter the kingdom without being born again. Now, uh, verse five gives us a little bit more in terms of details as to why this is so central, why you can't enter the kingdom without this. And, um, and, but what we have to have eyes to see is Jesus is referring to, alluding to, an Old Testament passage. Part of the reason we know that is because, uh, in other words, he's not just saying something brand new that, was, that has no pointers from the Old Testament to it. Part of the reason I think we know that is because if you read on, he talks to Nicodemus in verse 9, and Nicodemus says, how can these things be? How can someone, what's all this talk about being born again stuff? This doesn't make any sense. And Jesus answers, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? I think the point is you're a teacher of Israel. These are Old Testament truths that you, you you should know your Old Testament. He's not expecting Nicodemus to know something just brand new that he just revealed. Never been revealed for her. I'm going to reveal it right now. Nicodemus, shouldn't you know this? You're a teacher of Israel, Right? No, it's, it's, you know the Old Testament, look at the Old Testament. So, 
What is he talking about? Being born of the water and of the spirit. This is, uh, uh, which by the way, this is important too, because it helps us avoid this idea of baptismal regeneration, that by physically getting wet, you all of a sudden are reborn. That's not what he's talking about. So, and the way we know that is because the passage he is referring to is Ezekiel 36. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time, but if you'd like to, you can. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I'm just going to read this, but listen to what it says there. God makes this, this, these promises. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. So, that corresponds to the washing. There must be a washing going on. What it means is spiritually, you need to be cleansed from your sin and your guilt and your idolatry, okay? Um, So why do we need to be born again? Because we need to be cleansed, and that's part of what God's doing here. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We need a new heart. We need a new spirit. We need new affections for God, right? we We have a stony heart towards God, Think about a stone heart. It's, we think of the picture is unfeeling, unresponsive. This heart of flesh here, flesh is not meant in the, in the sinful way of flesh. That, that, gets used, that does get used even in John. Um, but, but it's this idea of beating, life-giving, warm, affectionate, responsive to God. And so he gives us this new birth. So that's what we see happening, I think, in John is, so why, why do we need to be born again? Because we need it to enter the kingdom of God. And what, that, what it does is it washes us. God washes us. He cleanses us. And he gives us a new heart, which is what we need so that we can actually respond to him, love him, obey him, desire him. So that's why we need to be born again. Now talk about what is going on in the new birth by focusing on three things it isn't. I'm going to go through these real quick. Um, and these are, these are kind of more inferences, but I think, I think they're warranted in the text. I don't think these are just completely random things. So verse 2, we see that it's not a mere mental ascent. So, so I'm telling you three things it's not to help clarify what it is. That's what I'm doing here, okay? It's not mere mental ascent to some facts about Jesus. Nicodemus knows some stuff about Jesus. Look at verse 2, right? Look, we know you're a teacher from God. We, we know some, we know, I, I know some great things. I mean, saying better things than a lot of the other religious leaders are saying about Jesus, but it's it's Jesus, but what does Jesus respond to him? He didn't say, Great, you're in the kingdom. Right? You must be born again. It's not just a bunch of facts. Now, facts are part of the new birth. I think that's true. But the point is just knowing certain things about Jesus is not the new birth. That's why you can have someone who they can have a PhD in the Bible and not be a believer, not be part of the kingdom of God. Second, the new birth is not an improvement. Uh, an improvement of yourself and your old nature. Verses five and six, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. There is a need for the spirit to give new life. You can't just reform yourself and change your own nature, right? Which really fits very closely with the third point. I guess I could have made these both one point, but you know, you gotta have threes. So the new birth is something we do not make happen. Verse seven, Jesus says he must be born again. And then verse eight, Uh, he doesn't then start giving him instructions on this is how you will born yourself again, right? I mean, even the verb, by the way, even the idea, born again, it it has to carry the idea, this is something you cannot do, right? I mean, otherwise, that was a terrible picture to select to explain what needs to happen, right? So you have to be born again, but okay, so so, um, 
the, the verse seven, verse eight, I'm sorry, it's like the wind, it blows where it wishes. It goes where it wants. In other words, you can't make this happen. You can't control the wind, you can't control your birth, your new, this new spiritual birth. Okay, so we have to be born again, and that is, again, a passive thing that is done to us. James 1.18, it's of his own will that he brought us forth by the word of the truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. When it says of his own will, he brought us forth. Brought us forth is an idea that is basically, it means to, um, let me see where I wrote it down here. The same idea as being born again, it means to be, well, I don't see it right now. Oh, yeah. So it means to bring forth from the womb as in giving birth. Um, so that's what we're talking about. Same idea, to be brought forth by God. So just real quick, one application is you can't cause someone to be born again. Um, so I think what's helpful is we realize all these um, ploys to work people up emotionally, right? If we just have the right music and we just have like a really cool looking preacher up there and he says really just relevant things, people will believe, no, they need to be born again, and none of that will make them born again. I, now, I'm not saying God doesn't use means. He uses the word of God being proclaimed faithfully and clearly. That's true, right? And when you're born again, he changes your feelings. Yeah, I mean, there are feelings that go with that, sure. But if we switch the order there, we got a big problem because you can't make someone born again by all those things you're doing. You know, what's interesting in this is in the whole of John chapter 3, there's not a single command that Jesus ever gave to Nicodemus. Yeah, right. Yeah, he doesn't, say, doesn't tell Nicodemus to... Technically, say there's a command in verse seven. Marvel not, but that's yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's not this command. Hey, go go born yourself again. Um, all right, Ephesians two. Let's look at Ephesians two, verses one through three. In Ephesians two, I want to ask the question: Why is a new birth necessary? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So what's our problem? We are dead. That is our problem. We are dead, which does not mean we are unable to do anything. We're not all just laying around. Like you're, you know, we, we all moved around before we became Christians. What does it mean? That's right, because we are walking, but what are we walking after? Not God's way. We're not alive towards what God says and who he is. We're following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, so the world, Satan, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in our own passions of our flesh, the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're very much alive in those categories, in that kingdom, in that realm. We are dead to God, though. That's the issue. We're dead to God. And we're by nature children of wrath. So we're dead. And because of that, by nature, our very nature calls forth the wrath of God. That is our problem. So what is the new birth? Verse 5, to be made alive together with Christ. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is something he does. He makes us alive. Again, notice the verb there. He makes us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. Verse 10, what is the new birth? It's also to be his workmanship. So again, he's doing it. He's fashioning. He's working. And yes, we're designed for good works. The new birth is going to bring forth new life and good works. It's going to have an effect. 
There's no, hey, I was born again. And this is, by, by the way, why the culture, or I guess the culture, there's a lot of, you know, born again Christians and this and that, and they're all blah, blah, blah. Okay, they're abusing that term, but part of it's because a lot of people who claim to be Christians abuse that term, right? They talk about how they were born again. I was born again. And they are not God's workmanship. There is no evidence that they are God's workmanship, right? If you're born again, you are designed for good works, God's workmanship. He's doing that work. There's a transformation that happens and continues to happen. Well, how does a new birth happen? Verse 9, it is not by works, right? There's no way we can boast in it. Verses 4 and 5, it is by God's grace and mercy and because he loved us. Look at verses 4 and 5. But God, so we're dead, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So it's mercy and love. That is the explanation. That is how it's going to happen. And, and notice it's even when we are dead. So it's not, so again, I think this points to, I'm not saying this verse is a slam dunk, but I think it points to that regeneration is going to precede our faith even. Because why? It is even when you are dead. You cannot generate anything when you are dead. So I think this again points to you have to be made alive to believe. The order, right? So he makes us alive. It's an undeserved gift of his grace. And we already said this, but it's by God making us alive, verses four and five. But God, he makes us alive. So the new birth is not, is not like a mortician putting makeup on a dead body. It can look alive, it can look great. No, the new birth is dead, now alive heart pumping heart, beating with blood and love towards God heart. Eyes that were closed in death, now opened to see things. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about makeup here. We're not talking about cosmetic. We're talking about nature, radical thing going on to the root. Okay, Titus 3. I'm just going to go over this one real quick. You can delve into it more later. Why do we need the new birth? Verse 3. Titus uh, chapter... 3 verse 3. Why do we need the new birth? For we ourselves were once, so as before we become Christians, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So we are foolish, which means we have no fear of God, right? We thought we, thought we were wise in our own eyes. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were enslaved by what we wanted, which again is why we are culpable for this. No one twisted your arm and forced you to rebel against God. You were happy in that. You were pursuing your pleasures in that. And, and it may not look like the pleasure of the world. It may be very religious, veneer-type pleasures. I'm going to look really good to those around me by doing what's good. Or I'm going to show God that I'm acceptable by doing what's good. It could have been a religious version of that. We have these passions and pleasures that are not for the glory of God. We're slaves to those things. So, what needs to happen? What is the new birth? Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saves us. It's not by works. No, instead it is by washing of regeneration, which is to, this is the way it's defined, is to experience a complete change of life, a rebirth. That's what it means. Same thing as new birth. Uh, so I think, I think you can see the language here of Ezekiel 36 again. We're not going to rehash that, but read through it and read through Ezekiel 36 like we looked at in John. Same idea. This washing of regeneration and this rebirth that's going on. This renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see both those things here. Now, how does the new birth come about? 
Well, it's not because of righteous works done by us, according to verse 5, which again uh, would, would include, I think, faith, because faith is, there's a righteousness with it. The righteous shall live by faith. And it's done by God. He saved us by doing these things to us, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So as we close here, we think about application. We must realize that we needed more than self-reformation. The world hates this doctrine of regeneration. It is probably one of the most offensive doctrines to the world. I'm not going to say it's the most. I think as pastors, we tend to always speak in hyperbole because we always want you to pay attention, right? Uh, but it is probably one of the most offensive, right? Because what are you saying when you say, you must be born again? Your problem is so to the core of who you are, and you are so locked into that, you can do nothing to make it right. The world always wants to do something to make it right. Or they want to just say, I wasn't wrong in the first place. Get off my back. But they don't want something that's this radical. And also, it's, it's, um, it, it's not self-reformation, which means you're totally dependent on the grace of God. We don't like that either. We don't like to be dependent on his grace and mercy. We want to be able to pull ourselves up or, or at least get by with a little boost, right? The application that flows out of that is we ought to praise God for his mercy and grace in giving new life. We were enslaved to our sins, but we can't claim to be victims because we were doing what we most wanted to do in our slave enslavement to sin. God, but God, but God showed us mercy and made us alive with Christ. That ought to resound to the glory and praise of his name, which is what Ephesians 1 said. That was the whole point of what he's done in saving us. And for those who aren't believers, we say cry out to God for his mercy, right? If you have a desire to believe, then believe. We're not saying figure out if you're born again, because if you have a desire to believe, you've been born again, believe. If you don't, then what are you complaining about? Because you don't want to go God's way, you could care less about God. More on that later, though, I'm sure. The point is, we want to recognize and praise God for what he's done. So we've seen that we are radically sinful to the root. We are running the opposite direction of God. We need a radical solution, which is the new birth. Only God can do that. And next time we're going to see how does that come to us personally? How does it invade? How does God's grace invade our life? We're going to look at the effective calling of God, irresistible grace. So let's pray. God, we are so grateful, uh, eternally grateful for what you have done for us. And, um, we are humbled by it, God. And we pray, we pray for our unbelieving family and friends. Would you make them alive? Would you open their eyes to see their blindness, God? We know you are just in all your ways. You are just even in, in condemning sinners, and yet you are also merciful and just in forgiving them in Christ Jesus. And so we pray that you'd open many eyes. We pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth in this coming hour. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.